War is about taking territory. It's about planting flags. In East Ukraine, you have a situation where neither side actually wants this territory. There might be individuals, businessmen, whatever who do, but neither Moscow nor Kiev is particularly keen to have this bit of godforsaken countryside. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. Does it feel like there's just too much information out there and you can't get a handle on it? Do you have trouble parsing the lies from the truth? Do you know all the places America's at war? Can we even technically call them wars? Are your Twitter followers even real or are they just bots? Are Antifa and the Proud Boys rumbling in the streets a natural extension of electoral politics or just street theater organized online? What if it's both? Are you tired all the time like me? The answers, or kind of answers, to some of these questions are at the heart of a new book, This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. Its author, Peter Pomerantsev, a senior fellow at the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics and a foreman Russian TV producer, is here with us today. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, so in 2014, I read your first book, uh, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And at the time, I thought it was one of the most important books about the media landscape and the way we live now that I'd ever read. It focused on Russia and how the Kremlin had pioneered a new form of authoritarian control. Um, Things have uh, accelerated since then, I'd say. And a lot of what you wrote about in Nothing is True has spread across the world. Uh, And This is Not Propaganda kind of takes a global view on this issue. Um, What do you think has changed since you wrote that first book? Well, look, my first book was fixated on Russia. It was a memoir of my time in Russia. And actually, the book ends, I don't know if you remember, I come back to London. um, And um, I'm sort of going, well, thank God I've come back and everything here is going to be normal. And it it ends actually with, 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 you know, uh, the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine and its international propaganda. And but also kind of me sort of seeing little indications that what I saw in Russia spreading across the world not just because it's caused by russia but because some sort of you know cultural cultural political zeitgeist and it actually ends uh the first book with me going oh my word um is russia actually not just this you know little curiosity pickled in its own agonies and its own propaganda is it actually something that is a harbinger of the future and the first book ended on that and it was a genuine question um, and the second book really picks up. And, and my conclusion, if you want to spin right to the end of the book, is that, yes, the future arrived first in Russia. And what, what do I mean by that? I mean, what we refer to rather casually and often annoyingly, but yet now quite universally as post-truth politics, i.e. a politics where politicians don't care if they're caught lying and actually revel in lying. Um, a politics where the idea of the future has disappeared and nasty nostalgias um, exist uh, instead and kind of where spectacle has pu- pushed out any kind of 
even attempts at rational sense. Uh, um, I think those are some of the key ingredients which which uh, I saw in Russia already uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s and now have spread everywhere. And, and with that kind of comes a, a propaganda approach that doesn't seem to convince people, but just looks to confuse them, undermine them and spread so much doubt that one ends up yearning for strongmen and kind of deliberative democracy in that kind of Greek way that we, we still aspired to quite recently, I think, has kind of disappeared as a possibility. Um, so without a doubt, I mean, I, I saw those things in Russian 2000s. In this book, I go back to the Russian 1990s and look at how they kind of developed then. And as you say, go around the world, the Philippines, Mexico, Europe, um, and even a little bit North America to sort of kind of do a kind of like show how, you know, these things are happening everywhere uh, with national characteristics. But but the kind of the underlying techniques and ideological crises are the same. I even go to China and, and find it a, a kind of another example of, of, of the same, but with Chinese characteristics. One of the one of the themes, I think, that that's kind of recurs over and over again is the way that this new media landscape uh, separates a person from their own reality. Can you speak to that? Yeah, look, to, to be honest, I think, I think that's always been a big part of, of, of propaganda and, and, and the cruelty of propaganda. Uh, but, but I think that's particularly so in the social media era and the Internet era, because the promise of social media and of the Internet was that hey, you would connect people to each other. Uh, that's why it was so exciting. But also that we'd be able to kind of to understand ourselves. You know, uh, I, I speak to this, um, uh, this 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 fantastic sort of activist and Internet guru in Mexico. Uh, and his whole idea is like, you know, the Internet would allow us to kind of see the revolutionary reality just below the surface. And then he's got a whole technology of doing that by analyzing Google searches. We can tell what the true desires for change are in a society. A bit like you know, Google can, te- can tell in these sort of famous studies that they've done when there was a, a flu epidemic building in a certain area. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, by the searches people were doing online, they could tell a flu epidemic was building people were asking questions that showed there were more and more cases of flu appearing in a very unnatural way so this guy he tries to look at sort of like you know are people complaining about employment or the ecology and, and so on and so forth and really catch that wave of the desire for social and political change before it's kind of been formulated into an idea and, and help to encourage very open engagement around it so you know what what a lot of the new propaganda are about is a splitting people up yeah. So so there's a wonderful study by Harvard people of propaganda, online propaganda in China showing that it's not so much fixated on crushing all opinion. You're not necessarily. It's much more concerned with as soon as they see people organized to split them up in Russia, the Kremlin through 2011-12 kind of flooded the Internet with so much disinformation. People couldn't organize anymore. It's all about partitioning and breaking people up, but also by, you know, creating these bots and trolls and gaming SEOs and so on and so forth, um, kind of putting out so much, um, uh, uh, putting so much noise in between people and their actual desires uh, online, how they're expressed online, that people can't tell uh, what they want anymore. I mean, sorry, that sounds a very wordy, long-winded way of saying it, but essentially Mexico, which is the case study I take, using so many bots and trolls that, that, that it sort of drowns out um, 
the actual social desires of people are expressing online with a lot of chaos and disinformation. Was, was that okay? Did that make sense? I don't know. You tell me. No, I think it makes sense. It's actually very, it's very clearly expressed in the book. Um, I'm sorry if I got a bit lost there. No, I think that's, I think that's clearly expressed. I think uh, you're kind of making the point that we've built a world where we, we, we interact with identity, with our politics and with each other through these filters, not really understanding that, uh, that there are other people with other agendas in control of those filters or at least shifting them. Right. TV always did that. You know, that was always part of TV. You create a fake, uh, fake reality, you know, uh, uh, and that then, and, and, you know, there's a lot of studies about this. People will see that. And if they think that the reality on TV is, is the dominant reality, then it will kind of, they will, they will change their behavior to adapt to it and fit in with it. So something called this spiral of silence, which is a very important sort of study of how people's relationship with, with, uh, with, with kind of with, um, uh, with broadcasting and, and mass media, which is why we always try to have a plurality of media. That was the idea have lots of different media so you know and in those clashes and conversations some sort of real you know the chance of a real reality the chance of a genuine reality emerges you know while in authoritarian regimes you had complete domination of the media sphere and people adjusted their behavior to fit in with the reality that was broadcast to them um so, so the internet was meant to be this breakthrough that was the thing that the internet was meant to sort of like release all the all the unsaid things in democracy but in authoritarian regimes is to knock down the fake kind of oppression of reality uh, the fake pseudo reality of, of oppressive regimes, authoritarian regimes, and you know, we, you know, people were able to express themselves genuinely. But basically, regimes have adapted by using, you know, the techniques of troll farms, uh, bots, uh, gaming the search algorithms. They are again able to um, sort of instill uh, a kind of a designed reality onto people, which people then start to fit themselves into. There's a great study by the Oxford Internet Institute, which basically says, look, it's not as if like one bot or one troll changes people's minds. That's not how it works. Yeah, no one's ever been conf- uh, convinced by one troll or one bot. It's But when you s- spread a whole inauthentic reality through the mass use of uh, inauthentic campaigns, people start thinking that that's the dominant point of view out there and start adapting their behavior towards it. Um, that's kind of what, I, what I'm trying to get at. Well, the authoritarian regimes also learned from the protest movements that were fighting them, correct? Exactly. I mean, especially with the Internet, uh, because, you know, uh, whether it's the Arab Spring or Gezi Park, or there's this wave of Internet powered protests across the world, which first really alarmed authoritarian leaders. And then they're like, OK, we can gain this. And then, you know, we can kind of crawl inside it and start manipulating it as well. But I don't want people to think. The book is all about technology. There is, you know, the book starts off with technology and very quickly gets into kind of bigger ideas because I, I don't think technology is very important and the relationship between technology and ideology and narratives is very interesting. To what extent, you know, does the nature of the technology change, you know, the ideological model? But but this is also a book about storytelling and ideas. Um, and and when it comes, you know, the, the sort of the story of, of revolution. Uh, it's really the storytelling of revolution that's been hacked, uh, which is what I explore extensively in the book. So the, 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 the forces, whether it's the Kremlin or far right forces that were kind of made vulnerable by the narrative of revolt and freedom and revolution that really dominated post 1989, have managed to use that language and that storytelling for their own ends. 
Right. I think that's the part of what you do in the book that makes that work and brings that to the forefront is the beginning of every chapter is is memoir, right? You're telling the story of your own family as dissidents in the Soviet Union. Exactly. So the book is um, uh, the, book, the, the book is actually built as a, a um, dare I say, a fugue, um, uh, which actually happened because as I was putting to the concept of the book, I was getting my kids to sleep every night by listening to a lot of Philip Glass, really good for getting kids to sleep. And it kind of the Philip Glass crawled into my head. He's a he's a modern composer, for those who don't know, who, who writes fugues. And, and, and I was like, OK, I want to really play with the past and present in this book, because this is a book about um, ideas of the future and ideas of kind of coherent sense of history breaking down. And so, as you say, the book is exactly 20 percent memoir, or almost 20 percent memoir. I, I was quite strict on not overdoing it. But I tell the story of my parents who were dissidents uh, in, in, in the Soviet era um, and their fight for freedom. They were arrested by the KGB for reading books. And my father was a very sort of freedom loving type of poet and artist. And their work for the BBC and then Radio Free Europe during the Cold War. But really kind of you know expressing these sort of very classical ideas of, of freedom and revolt against totalitarianism that, that was so important in the 20th century and showing how all these ideas have been hacked and changed. But in the book, the memoir then seeps into the future because my parents are still very much alive and working. And so at the end, I hope to give some hope by showing how, you know, both they're still going and then they're transforming their ideas to battle the authoritarianisms of the future. Um, I don't know if that came off. That was meant to be the rhythm of the book, which was meant to be rewarding in itself. But I don't know. It's also a literary experiment. book. <laughs> I think you succeeded. Thank you. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite bits, one of my favorite memoir bits, uh, is the beginning of Soft Facts, uh, which is a little bit later in the book. When you talk about uh, this is when your father's working at the BBC, um, but I, b- I believe it's your mother, or it, this it kind of highlights these other kinds of. Uh, I, I hesitate to call it authoritarian control because that's not really what it is. Um, but your parents, when they come to the West, begin pushing up against these other kinds of, con- of these other kinds of control things, specifically of your mother being told that her views as a Soviet dissident are biased. Uh, can you speak to that and like how that, ref- what, how that reflects today or what the point of that is today? That was a poorly worded question, but. No, 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 look, very well noticed because that's one of the little things that I, I, I try to do is, is drop in these little details of life which you know reflect these huge debates about public opinion and propaganda as a part of public opinion um, so yes yeah, so this is a whole chapter which is about the idea of is objectivity possible yeah I, you know in the present you know I talk about things like Fox News or Russian propaganda which basically argue for a kind of wild relativism that you know everything is biased there's no such thing as objectivity Activity. There's actually no such thing as facts, which I think is the larger kind of cultural background that makes a Trump or a Putin possible. Um, but then I go back to the 20th century where, you know, my father's worked at the BBC World Service, which is, you know, wins the media Cold War by, by insisting on facts. And I talk about Chernobyl as this moment where everyone in the Soviet Union listened to the BBC World Service because they needed the facts about what was going on. But I already show how in that period in the 20th century, in the, in the 80s, already you have this kind of you know, incipient, uh, the beginnings of, of, a, of a narrative that will later say that, oh, everyone's biased, so therefore there are no facts and there is no objectivity or accuracy to, for a BBC to cleave to. And it's a little scene when she, she comes, that she told me about her colleagues at London University, 
who are nice, but but generally very leftist, uh, as academics tend to be. And, and they say, well, well, Lena, you can't be objective about the USSR because uh, uh, you're a dissident. So you're biased. And she says, no, 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 I was a dissident because the objective nature of the USSR. Um, which, you know, repress freedoms. And, and it's just a little note. Uh, but, you know, I can show how, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, that 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 has grown into, you know, that sense that everyone's biased uh, or there is no objectivity out there um, has been completely taken over and hacked and is now misused by by very align political forces. Yeah, I remember the the exact moment I knew that we were truly in trouble and living very much in the world of your book that you described in your first book after uh the Republican National Convention Trump gave this, you know, law and order America's in trouble speech. They were interviewing Newt Gingrich afterwards and they were pressing him, you know, like crime rates are down. Uh what's going on here? And he said, "Well, you have your set of facts and we have our set of facts." It's like, oh no. <laughs> um, so it's interesting you mentioned you because I was I I had to I had to listen to a lot of Fox News for this, especially Sean Hannity, who I find fascinating. And Newt is often on Hannity's radio show and on his TV show, and I've heard him say that quite a lot. He he really speaks like a really a, a really bad undergraduate who's just come across postmodernism and using what I think rules called bad relativity. You know, there is actually a concept in philosophy about good relativity which takes in other people's points of view and bad relativity which basically says oh well then there is no truth um and it's, it's absolutely stunning i mean this is certainly a man who we would expect reflected a you know conservative ideology which insisted on the primacy of enlightenment values but not anymore well there's an idea that newt himself was ground zero for a lot of this stuff in american politics but that's a whole other discussion um I want to talk about some of the specific places that you visited and what you saw there. Uh, can we talk about Estonia? And can you tell me about why statues are important in Estonia, an important part of this discussion? Okay, so, um, you know, Estonia is one of the places that we saw um, the Kremlin's use of, again, we don't know what to call it, hybrid war. I don't really like that. Um, the Kremlin's use of very, very aggressive uh, ways of messing with other countries without quite invading them, whatever you want to call the play out. And that was, this is, I think, 2007, 2008. You're going to have to, you're going to have to double check in the book. Sorry, I'm going to get a date wrong. Uh, but um, essentially, um, there was a statue in Estonia um, celebrating um, a Soviet soldier in World War II, which after, you know, a, a lot of stupidity, actually from Estonian nationalists who said this has to be removed uh, and quite, you know, genuinely provocative behavior from them. And then maybe a very rash decision by the government of the time to move it. Uh, you know, the Russians always capitalize on stupidity and polarization that exists. But in any case, once it's moved, you have a, a, a mixture of, kind of riots by ethnic Russians who are in contact with the Russian embassy. But more important, like a massive media assault onto Estonia all looking to fuel polarization, saying that Estonia, sort of ethnic Russians have been attacked in Estonia by mobs, that somebody's been killed, all of this utter nonsense, uh, sort of fueling the sense that Estonian fascists are uh, attacking the poor ethnic Russians who are protesting against the removal of the statue. Um, so you've got riots, you've got media attack based on kind of what we would now call 
or we shouldn't call, but let's call it fake news. And um, most importantly, uh, a massive kind of internet attack, a DDoS attack, which incapacitates Estonia's banking system, parliament, and major media. So basically, they take out Estonia for a day. Again, you can't even prove who did this, because apparently it's patriotic hackers from Russia who are just doing this, you know, out of uh, out of their sense of patriotic duty. I mean, the government says it's got nothing to do with us. So again, that deniability, all the, these factors that afterwards we saw in Ukraine, to a certain extent in America and in other countries, played out in Estonia much, much, much earlier. And it's a real kind of foretaste of things to come. Uh, so that's the technical side. But also, I think there we have a foretaste of the Kremlin doing something else, which is... It's, Basically saying, look, you guys have your colour revolution. Well, we're going to do this now, you know. This is our version. There is, actually, it's the same. Your colour revolution, our stirring of, of discontent in Estonia, you do it, we do it. There's no difference. Um, especially because Estonia is also the place where, you know, where a lot of the street protests that led to 1989 and, and the overthrow of the Soviet Union also took place. So, again, I, I use that as a small example of the Kremlin tapping into, um, you know, the sort of like the street language and the associations you have with street protests and saying, well, two sides can play it, uh, at this game. Street protests don't necessarily have to be pro-democracy. They can be pro-authoritarian. Um, they, we saw that much more in Ukraine. So when the Ukrainian Maidan happens, the Russian-backed forces, but essentially run by the Russians, but not Russian-backed, Russian-run proxy forces in Ukraine start doing their own kind of uh, revolutionary protests uh, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, so, well, you know, there's there's big protests in Kiev. Well, we're going to have our own ones here. They usually even use the same kind of uh, visual imagery. We're putting tires everywhere and they call it the Russian Spring, which is a invocation of the Prague Spring. The great you know, uh, Czech, uh, demonstrations in 1968 in Czechoslovakia against Soviet rules. They're constantly using the language of protests uh, and the visual uh, the visual language of protests in order to kind of say, well, you know, protests don't necessarily mean democracy and prosperity they can mean something else entirely and that eats away uh at our sense that you know street protests are part of an inevitable historical process towards ever more democracy everywhere you just lighted on something else that i thought was a really interesting theme in the book uh maybe not a theme but something that you said kind of at this point there's this this idea of russian hybrid war or whatever you want to call it however you want to define the thing that they're doing um, once you do define it, or if you accept that they're doing it, you are accepting it on their terms, and you are kind of trapped by the way that they frame it. And that can be dangerous in and of itself, right? Yeah, I mean, what I look at specific... So firstly, let's talk about framing, yeah? When we're talking about information and language, you know, we have to be very careful. Information language, you don't win and lose in it by kind of, you know, shooting words like bullets to shoot the other person with, you know, which is somehow, sometimes the language will get caught in when we talk about what's become known as information war. We You win it, I mean, there's been so much study on this, in this, you know, in the field of media facts for decades now. You win it by agenda setting, getting the other side to talk about what you want to talk about, and by framing the issue in such a way that imposes a logic that leads to the result that you want. So information war, and I talk about information war specifically uh, in the book, which is you know something a term we've started to think and talk about a lot since since sort of Russian malign foreign activity has been discovered. 
Uh, we started using the words information war a lot. And, and that is actually much more than a series of techniques. Yeah, that Russia uses. In Russia, information war, and they have a whole kind of like, you know, body of pseudo experts who talk about this, is a whole philosophy. It basically says the Soviet Union lost the Cold War, not because it had rubbish policies and terrible human rights, but because of information war from the West. Information viruses planted by the West, like Perestroika and Glasnost, et away at the Soviet Union and, and destroyed it. And nowadays, everything we see in the world, color revolutions, you know, for all sorts of things, uh, 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 the promotion of democracy, the spread of kind of like uh, international news. These are all parts of information war. These are nothing has any values in information war. Nothing has any sort of sense of history or ideals or norms or rights. Everything is mere manipulation. Yeah. The whole world is a manipulative space. And the problem is when we t- think about the world in terms of information war, we start to buy in to this Russian worldview. Um, and the Russian worldview actually has a policy aim because the Russians have a whole idea. If the whole world is information war, then it's going to be, then we need information sovereignty and censorship to stop it. It's a way of excusing censorship. Yeah? It's a way of breaking uh, a world of less borders and less frontiers, which was the ideal of 1989. So there's a real danger that as we completely correctly recognize Russia's malign activity, as we completely correctly um, think about policies to deal with it, we can actually slip into thinking about it in the logic that they want. Yeah. So A, just a cultural sense that everything is manipulation, everything is information war. And I think we already, and then we don't listen to the other side. We don't try to argue with the other side. We don't try to win arguments. We just, you know, we're constantly kind of in this paranoid stance of, of, of non-stop, um, non-stop psychological conflict. Uh, but even more importantly, we start to develop policies that actually strengthen that. So we see that, I think, already in the West with, um, you know, you have sort of, uh, firstly, you have kind of very, very, you know, uh, cheeky sort of quasi-authoritarians in the Balkans, for example, saying, oh, well, we've got to like, you know, we've got to shut down the independent press here because, you know, there might be part of Russia's information war. So they're just like abusing the situation. But even healthy democracies like Germany, like France, start talking about imposing censorship on Internet content as a way to approach this, which I think is completely the wrong policy solution and actually one that plays into Russia's worldview and makes information into something dangerous that we have to defend ourselves from. And it becomes, you know, we're basically saying that censorship is normalized, which, again, is the opposite of what, you know, (laughs) Russian Democrats want. I do think that's a clever way of doing regulation. Uh, I do think we need regulation in this space, uh, but I don't think censorship is the way forward at all. So, so you kind of uh, another track I wanted to go down. Uh, it's this idea of ideology first, and then shape the world around that. Right? That's kind of what Russia's doing. Yes. Well, that's. That's what when they talk about information war, they say all ideologies are just excuses to do something. So very basically, they say, look, freedom of expression. The Americans don't believe in it. They just use that as a way to impose regime change in other countries or human rights. So basically, they're saying, look, it doesn't you know what comes first is a military aim. Yeah, an aim to a political aim. And then you you magic up any ideology you need to make that possible. So even in, in terms of Russia having a uh, it is the 
defenses for information warfare. They're like, okay, we've got to create an ideology that gives us an excuse to impose sense. Uh, it's, it's everything, you know, information precedes essence. First, you have a military aim around information or a political warfare aim, and then you like, you chuck some ideology on top to, to, to give that shape. Um, and look, they get me wrong. You know, there are times when America has been very, very hypocritical in its use of human rights discourse and freedom of expression discourse. Um, but that doesn't mean that those values aren't there and thereabouts. Um, and then, you know, the fact that we even say the U.S. has been hypocritical really shows that there's something to be hypocritical vis-a-vis. So, you know, there are some values there somewhere that we can at least appeal to. Uh, in the Russian version, there aren't even any values to appeal to. Regulation is a small part of the solution to these very important problems. I don't know if regulation is going to be the thing that's going to come and help us. Uh, I think it's one of the four. I think it's one of the small. I think in, in, we talk about propaganda, information, and political speech. Regulation is never going to play a big part unless you're kind of a dictator. Uh, and even they struggle to cope with that. Uh, but I do think there are. The regulation itself can be a piece of storytelling, you know. Um, so the regulation I think we need is to make a much more transparent Internet where we have much we actually understand how the information environment is being shaped. So I think it's our right to know whether something is a bot or not a bot. I'm not saying anonymity. Anonymity is very necessary and a democratic right. But I, as a user of the Internet, should be able to understand why algorithms have chosen one piece to show me one piece of information, not another. Whether I'm seeing something online as part of a campaign or it's organic, which bit of my data has been used? I mean, the Internet has to become interpretable. And that's also a piece of political storytelling, because that says, look, in democracies, this is how this is the sort of information space we have. It's one where the user has a right to understand everything about how it's shaped. While in authoritarian regimes, that's never going to happen. You know, the Kremlin and the Chinese want to keep their information space as a black box. Yeah. So I think there's a bit of very important storytelling to do around um, the information space and regulating it. However, I agree that all that will do is help even the field to give, you know, to give the ordinary citizen at least a fighting chance of survival. It won't win anything. I mean, you know, people might still choose to follow, you know, Russian propaganda or Nazi propaganda. I mean, it won't mean that the forces of uh, liberal democracy have won. I want to talk about how I mean, this is a war show, ostensibly. I want to talk about how war has changed, how this has all altered the way conflict looks. And I think in your book, it's most apparent in your chapter about Ukraine. What did you see there? Yeah. Well, Ukraine, I think, is so important to understand because it's really a place where a lot of things we've talked about are, are crystallized. Uh, it's also very important for me personally in the book because my parents are from Ukraine and I and I was going back to the places where my father was arrested in Odessa in the 70s and, and, uh, and seeing the new war there now. So he fought, fought in a cold war while today we have this information war. Um, but I also go right to the front lines. Uh, and I spent some time with the army. And um, it's a very, very strange thing when you're there, because at the end of the day, I think, I guess, maybe war experts know better. But for me, you just did a bit of you know, war in, in school and university. War is about taking territory. It's about planting flags. In East Ukraine, you have a situation where neither side actually wants this territory. There might be individuals, businessmen, whatever who do, but neither Moscow nor Kiev is particularly keen to have this bit of godforsaken countryside. But 
neither can they give it away because if they give it away, that's made them look bad in certain ways. And also that, you know, they need, you know, they, they need it for various you know, political games. So you have this conflict where, where the information effect for both sides is far more important than the territorial effect. Um, and the storytelling that's done and the, sort of the people on the ground, the soldiers on the ground, they use this kind of like actors in a piece of storytelling all the time. Um, so that's very, very, very strange. It's as if the information effect is far more important than the, than the physical effect. Um, and, and that's very weird. The soldiers there are very aware of it. They're very aware that they're involved in it. They're actually part of an information war uh, or a war where, where the information is more important than, than the physical tanks. Um, uh, and that's just very strange. It's very unusual. Um, uh, it was to me anyway, and I think it was to the soldiers as well. No, I, I brought it up because it's it's kind of – we just talked to Robert Young Pelton who gotten back from Libya, uh, and he described a very similar situation there, the civil war in Libya, where it is – a lot of it is theater, and he called it the future of war. Um, well, I think the future of war came to Ukraine first. I think that's what you're – I think that's what you saw. Um, you know, America's been in Afghanistan for almost two decades, and at this point – the con it's not it's not about taking and holding territory like what are the objectives here things have changed completely uh and i think about um the the famous clausewitz line war is a continuation of politics by other means and i wonder what this version of war says about our politics now Oh, that's a great question. But let's go deeper into what each side is trying to do in, in Ukraine and but, but in, in East Ukraine. And by the way, I don't want to draw any kind of equivalence. I mean, there's only one guilty party in, in, in this war, and that's that's Russia. But basically, the Russians, the storytelling the Russians need to show in East Ukraine is that your desire or the desire for democracy leads to pain, blood and horror. Yeah, they need to sh- break you know, that montage, that editing association that we had in our heads from 1989, that crowds out on the street as they were in Maidan, you know, in, in Kiev in 2014, lead to democracy and prosperity. They need to instill, you know, an editing cut that says, look, they went for democracy. Yeah, they they overthrew their, their kleptocratic authoritarian government. And what do you get? You get blood and horror. It's not even about Russia invading. It's about blood and horror. It's that, it's that line. Well, the Ukrainians need to show that if you welcome in Russian proxy forces, if you welcome in Russia, you won't get a nice time either. You won't get kind of Crimea and and kind of embracement from Russia. You will also get discomfort, yeah, and pain. So, so both of them are trying to show that's 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 the narrative both need to show, and that's the narrative that they need enough on the ground evidence to create enough shots to exemplify that. Uh, neither wants to take Lobachevo, which is like, you know, this godforsaken village that I went to, where, like, you know, which is in the center of this conflict, and neither side wants this village at all. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's so, so, so what, so we're in a world where the narrative, where the storytelling is more important than kind of the evidence, you know, is, is that what it tells us about our politics? That, that, that are, we're in a world where I'm thinking out loud. We're in a world where narratives are constantly being improvised, or you could take the same facts on the ground and show completely different narratives. Maybe that's the point. That's the world we're in. I mean, that's that certainly relates to sort of like you know the one one way to explain Trump's 
you know, word salad is that by saying so many different things, people just say, take what they want from it and create their own narrative out of it. I mean, that's what we keep on seeing online. You know, it happens over and over and over again. Uh, whether it's the, you know, the, the Brett Kavanaugh um, uh, nomination or what we have now in, in Britain over Brexit, we kind of have the same set of facts on the ground and people will just create completely different stories out of them. And you kind of see it happening in real time. Is that, is that the big lesson? Everything, reality is up for grabs. But, you know, whatever the facts are, the evidence is, it's all about magicking up um, quick stories out of it. Isn't that playing into the Kremlin's postmodern nihilistic view of the world and of reality, though? Well, I mean, the horrible thing that I, I say in the book is that the Kremlin might have caught the zeitgeist. I'm not saying that it's good or bad, that they, they just got it. And in my book, I argue uh, that the paradox is that by losing the Cold War, by being the place for kind of all the old kind of like Enlightenment style stories, whether it's communism, which for all its perversities was based meant to be based in objective scientific fact, uh, and democratic capitalism, which is imbued with Enlightenment thinking. Because both these stories collapsed first in Russia, communism in 91, and then by 93, people have lost faith in democratic capitalism. It becomes this kind of like, you know, uh, this kind of vacuum space where a new type of politics emerges, which, you know, politics has always been about storytelling. But here it's just about emotion storytelling without any need for evidence or, or kind of like, you know, evidence and, and, and rational discourse anymore. And so the Russians are just quite good at it. Uh, because they've been developing propaganda strategies since the sort of mid 90s to deal with this new unreality. Uh, and I show that in quite a lot of sort of granularity in the book, showing how the propaganda strategies used by Russian spin doctors in 96 and 99 kind of anticipate Brexit and Trump by several decades. We've kind of arrived at, at, at the same place. I mean, where are the consensus about, you know, rational theories of social and economic progress? have whittled away, partly because the financial crash, partly maybe because, you know, you can only impose that consensus on rational, a rational style reality with a limited amount of media, partly because of, you know, various foreign policy adventures that went wrong. But whatever, it, enough people are now in that kind of nihilistic place where, where Russians are, where they see no, you know, no Enlightenment style version of the future that, that, that has any worth to them. Um, so Russia caught the zeitgeist. Uh, it kind of admitted this new reality and, and managed to cope with it first. And in the book, I think that our challenge is, is to, in the space I write about, which is the information space, is how do we deal with this? How do we start generating discourses in an information space where facts start mattering again? Yeah, it's up to us to sort of do something with this sort of uh, uh, with this kind of completely liquid, swirling period where everything is constantly up for grabs. We have to start building that reality again, uh, building that shared reality uh, again. So, so that's the challenge we face. Um, so the Russians got to the zeitgeist, um, and and that's why they're quite good at it. I mean, this Russia is a declining power uh, with massive social and economic problems. They just somehow managed to tap into the information game so well. They seem like you know, you know, they they they, they, they seem like these titans again. You know, they've managed to accrue great power status just through you know very very targeted use of real power in syria uh and ukraine but also largely through you through information peter thank you so much for coming on the show 
The book is This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality by Peter Pomerantsev. That's it for this week on War College. Thank you for listening. As always, War College is me, Matthew Galt, and producer Kevin O'Dell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields, who had a beautiful wedding. If you like the show, please remember to like, subscribe, do all the things that you know to do. Send us a comment on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. We are available wherever fine pods are casted, and we will be back next week. Stay safe until then.